This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Uh, one of the biggest surprises I had in my life, it was almost like a first really positive love letter. That was a letter from uh, the director of space flight operations of NASA in only two years after they'd been founded. And uh, would I come and join them in their explorations of the Moon and Mars? Well, having read science fiction as a kid, I mean, this is a lot like a bolt from the blue. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. This week, we spend some time with James Lovelock, the visionary scientist and environmental thinker who this month turns 100 years old. James Lovelock is best known as the creator of the Gaia Hypothesis, which proposes that our planet and all the life on it functions as a single self-regulating organism. Less well known is that he also developed scientific instruments for NASA missions to Mars. He invented the electron capture detector, with which he became the first person to detect the widespread presence of CFCs in the atmosphere, and he even carried out influential work on cryopreservation, bringing frozen hamsters back to life. James Lloyd, staff writer at BBC Science Focus, visited Lovelock in his Dorset home to look back at his life and his achievements. Um, I was also wondering, you've worked in so many different areas of science over your career, um, being in medicine, biology, geoscience. Um, looking back, which of your achievements would you say you're most most proud of oh heavens um don't know i've never really thought about it <laughs> um i'm really much more of an engineer than a scientist mm-hmm. um the, the the scientist i i admired most of all um had in mind as a model was faraday of course mm-hmm. he was in illiterate and uh, in in innumerable logic sense uh-huh. And yet, let look back at what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think uh, no, I've been very lucky. I've had a, the, the world has been changing in such a way that uh, questions have arisen all the time that that uh, could be answered, that mm. solutions could be given. And uh, I've been lucky enough to have the, the, the answers to, for them. I mean, World War II was a typical example of this. Mm-hmm. It just raised questions at a rate that uh, we haven't seen before or since. Uh-huh. I was wondering, what, what were you involved in in World War II? Were you, um, were you in Britain at the time? I was in yes, I was in Britain all the time. Um, I was a student at first, mm-hmm. and I was very fortunate... Uh, uh, my parents were quite poor, 
Um, and my father was retired about because I was a late product of his. And uh, so they, they had very little money. They co- I couldn't go to university, not because they couldn't afford to send me, but because there wouldn't be the money coming in to support the family, which right. was uh, the normal mm-hmm. working class thing in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I had to get a job, and I was lucky enough to get a job with a firm of consultants in London who were consultants of the photographic industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they covered the whole damn field from lenses right the way down to the synthesis of colour dyes and whatnot. And I learned an immense amount of science from there, right across the field. Uh, not, not, well, not just not science, it was engineering, making things, mm-hmm. uh, solving problems, and realising how important it was uh, to do it properly and be accurate, because... Mm-hmm. You you can't give fake results to a customer. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it, it just wouldn't do. And uh, that 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 was a lesson that I think has been with me all my life and has been very valuable. Uh, then when the war started, they shut down Birkbeck College, which I was attending as an evening class student. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was lucky enough to get a, a place at Manchester, Mm-hmm. And uh, um, went and uh, took chemistry there for a year and a half. Uh-huh. And at the end of that time, uh, I, I was of, of course we were deep in the war, and there's a question of you. I would ordinarily have had to have joined up, mm-hmm. but I was brought up a Quaker, mm-hmm. and it was almost a duty to be a conscientious objector, which I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, they gave me unconditional exemption, so I could do what I like. And uh, it turned out there was a job going at the National Institute for Medical Research at Hampstead in London. And uh, that was, I I was lucky because I was taken on there. And the director was the president of the Royal Society, Sir Henry Mm -hmm. Dale. And its standard was exceedingly high. And uh, I mean, it was as good as going to Oxbridge or Cambridge in these Mm -hmm. these times. And... um, uh, I, I learned an awful lot there. Uh, and as the director said when I joined, he said, my boy, he said, don't expect to do any science here. <laughs> he said, um, the war started, it's all ad hoc problems to be solved preferably yesterday. <laughs> uh, and so it was, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned there that you were brought up a Quaker. Do you think that's had an impact on your worldview and, and how you think about you know, your science, how you think about the, the environment? I think so, yes, perhaps. Because the Quaker Sunday school that my parents sent me to when I was a child was in Brixton, in South London. And it's quite extraordinary because they didn't teach theology, they taught cosmology <laughs> <laughs> in the uh, uh, Sunday school. And uh, so... Uh, that sort of reinforced my interest in science generally. Mm-hmm. And you talk about um, being an, an independent scientist in a way. You've been largely free to do your own thing. Yeah. Um, do you feel quite fortunate to have had the had the chance to have well, if had that freedom? Do, if you do your own thing and only earn a small amount of money, you can do any science you like. Mm-hmm. You don't need a lot of money to mm-hmm. do science. You don't need... 
ultra microscopes and whatnot. You can usually find in practice, you can borrow time on one of them or something mm. like that. Um, so, no, it's, I would recommend any youngster who wants to do science or engineering uh, to consider doing it on his own rather than being taught. Mm-hmm. And why, why is that beneficial? Does it give more freedom, essentially? It's not just the freedom. It's you, you have to think mm-hmm. and, and find the, the right answer. Uh-huh. Um, whereas all you do at a university is learn how to pass exams and uh, give the right answers because it, it's practical. The employers really want to select youngsters who are intelligent enough Mm. for the kind of jobs they'll have. Mm-hmm. They don't give a damn about what they were taught. Mm-hmm. So you're wasting maybe two or three years. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and you, you said earlier that you think of yourself almost more as an engineer than a scientist. Um, so over your career, obviously, you've, you've been involved in a lot of... Well, you, you're an inventor, essentially. You, you invent things. Well, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the biggest surprises I had in my life, it was almost like a first really positive love letter. That was a letter from uh, the director of space flight operations of NASA in uh, only two years after they'd been founded. And uh, would I come and join them in their explorations of the moon and Mars? Well, having read science fiction as a kid, I mean, this is like a bolt from the blue. And I dropped my permanent civil service job with the MRC and uh, shot off to California like a rocket. Um, so it was like the 1950s then? Um, yes, the end of the 1950s, <laughs> yes. And uh, um, the, they wanted me, not not because I was clever or because anything like that, but because I'd invented uh, d- detective devices that were quite small, only a few centimetres long, used virtually zero power, Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, would detect all the kind of life uh, characteristic substances they were interested in that might potentially be on the surface of Mars, uh-huh. Mars or Moon. And uh, it was this, there's this kind of engineering stuff mm-hmm. that they wanted me for. They right. couldn't give a damn about the science. Uh-huh. So what were you involved in then when you, got, when you went over to California? What were you doing for NASA? Uh, well, I've got two bits of hardware on Mars uh-huh. uh, that were on the Viking Okay, uh-huh. and what's the job of these uh, these instruments then? They're to is it looking for it was particular to gases? Analyze the atmosphere and surface mm-hmm. of Mars. And what have they found, or what have they not found? <laughs> this is not a very suitable place for life. Uh-huh. So you're you're quite um, you, you don't think that humans are going to Mars? Is that right? You don't you don't think Mars makes a very good place for humans to to move to? I think they're mad completely. <laughs> uh-huh. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, we've got a beautiful planet here, absolutely beautiful. And with far less effort, we could treat that better uh, um, and make it desirable to live in. Mm-hmm. Whereas Mars is, I mean, a monster, monumental effort mm. to shift stuff there and uh, make it fit for life, uh-huh. if you ever could. So do you think all the missions to Mars, like, the rovers were seeing, like Curiosity, for example, and and the orbiters. Do you think they're a waste of time, or do you think they are still useful? To worse than a waste of time, I think it's absolutely disgraceful. And you should appreciate this: 
we know now more about the surface of Mars than we do about the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if we're concerned with the climate of the Earth and its future, it's much more important to know, <clears throat> know about our ocean than it is about the surface of Mars. Uh-huh. So if you had, this is a thought experiment, but say you were given, let's say, a billion dollars, maybe more, to spend on any area of science, where would you, where, where would you spend your money? I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't accept it in the first place. I wouldn't want it. It would tie me down. You'd be surrounded by thousands of bureaucrats <laughs> and people who knew exactly how you should spend it. That's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, There'd be a lot of paperwork. Uh, no, I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole <laughs> if they offered it. Um, no, you do it on it by yourself. Somebody comes to you and says, how would you? Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, they did. Uh, one of my first experiences at Jet Propulsion Labs was to go along and see the biological experiments that were being proposed to send to Mars. And they saw, there were a whole bunch of biologists, and they solemnly went out into the Mojave Desert mm-hmm. and collected various forms of life to see if they could demonstrate its presence there. Right. Uh, well, this was assuming that life on Mars was the same as on the just yeah. because they're both deserts. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is mm-hmm. madness. Yeah. And I, it so happened I'd read Schrodinger's book, uh, what is life? Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you know. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely little book. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went to see the boss who had called me and threatening to take my job away because I was so upsetting the biologist. But uh, um, I, d- I took Schrodinger and said, what we should do is look for an entropy reduction uh-huh. somehow on, uh, on Mars, not, not look for life. So why would that why would that show that life? And was so present? he said, "How would you do it?" He said, "It's very well talking about an entropy reduction, but that's very theoretical. Mm. We want something practical." Mm-hmm. So he said, "You've got until Friday <laughs> to come with an answer." And I went went back and I thought, "Well, that's the end of this job," <laughs> but, but it wasn't because when I came back on Friday, I said to him, "It's dead easy. All you have to do is measure the composition of the atmosphere of Mars, and." If there are, the atmosphere is made of gases that react with one another and produce energy, mm-hmm. then you sh- sure as hell its entropy is lower than it would be if it were just a random collection of uh, odds and ends. And then that would be a sign that life and was... And it's a simple experiment to do. Uh-huh. And sure enough, it's the way to do it. And I said, look at the Earth. I mean, it's got an atmosphere with highly react methane and oxygen mixed. And... Mm. Uh-huh. Um, um, uh, and uh, there's not only that, you can do the same as the surface. See if the surface reacts with the atmosphere or not. And is that what your instruments on Mars are doing then? That's what they were sent to do. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they so far have found that there aren't, there aren't these reactive gases or there isn't this reaction going on. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't find it. Mm. No. Mm-hmm. Another thing I was going to ask you about is um, talking about your inventions was the uh, electron capture detector. It's a different story. <laughs> I'll tell it, and uh-huh. you can can it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, before this Mars letter came, I was working in the biology department of the uh, MRC on freezing animals and bringing them back to life again. Mm-hmm. In fact, we, we succeeded that. Nobody seems to know it, but we actually froze hamsters and brought them back to, until they were like blocks of blocks of wood. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
they were brought back to life again. So what were you trying to find yeah. out by doing this? Don't, don't ask me. It's all <laughs> part of medicine. Uh, uh, it, I mean, there, there would be reasons for freezing a part of somebody and then uh, reviving it. So it's kind of cryogenics. Yes. I, suppose. I mean, it, it's all good technique in in um, in medicine. That's, that was, I think, the prime reason. Uh, but um, I, I was doing this, and it turned out that one of the important things with... Um, resistance to low temperatures and freezing is the degree of saturation of the fatty acids that, uh, that compose the lipids uh, of the animal or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more unsaturated they are, the more resistant the uh, thing is to freezing. Mm -hmm. it, it's just a matter of melting point. Mm -hmm. The lower the melting point, the, I mean, you just, if you've got fat in your tissues, what you don't want it is it goes solid. <laughs> it's not going to help. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, I, I was working on, on this, and I wanted to know the composition of the fatty acids, and Archer Martin had just invented the gas chromatograph. And uh, this was, of course, an instrument that you could analyze mm -hmm. uh, things like uh, unsaturated fatty acids. So I ran up to his lab, which was just one floor above me, mm -hmm and uh, said, do you think you could analyze this, this sample of the fatty acids for me? And he looked at me and said, of course, we'd love to analyze it. He said, but, no, but there's not a hope in hell. He said, I said, why not? He said, it's too, too little. You've got to bring about 100 times as much. Mm -hmm. uh, our instrument isn't that sensitive. Mm -hmm. And then he looked at me and grinned and said, of course, you could invent a better <laughs> sensitive detector for us. Mm -hmm. And that that stirred the engineer. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, hell with the freezing! <laughs> you had a problem. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was a wonderful institute. The director, Sir Charles Harrington, said, "I went to him and said, do you mind if I take a few weeks off and work work uh, helping Archer Martin? Uh, it's mainly uh, work on on the physics of slow electrons." Mm -hmm. And he said, "I don't care a damn what you do as long as it's good science." <laughs> And uh, that, that's the sort of boss you really need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I invented that thing, and it um, it was by far the most sensitive detector in uh, in existence. You, you, you. It was so sensitive that if you tipped over um, a, a pint bottle of a perfluorocarbon in this room now, mm. you could pick it up in Japan a week later. In the atmosphere, wow. it was in, and it was used in America on a grand scale to um, uh, see what would happen if there was an H bomb explosion on the west coast. Mm -hmm. They were able to release perfluorocarbon into the yeah. atmosphere and trace it all uh -huh. the way across the okay. continent. Uh -huh. Huh. So I was going to ask you, would you be able to, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but would you be able to explain Gaia theory to someone who's, if someone hadn't come across it before, how, how would you explain it? So how would I explain Gaia theory? Mm. It's the, uh, it, it sees the Earth as a system made up of all living things, all the rocks, all the uh, atmosphere, all of the ocean, and uh, uh, all of, yeah, all of living things, I've mm -hmm. mentioned that. And uh, these interact together to sustain a state that keeps the living 
part of it surviving. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to. If the living part dies, then so does the whole the whole darn system. Then it goes back. It'll become another rocky planet like mm-hmm. the, like the ones that uh, we have already, mm-hmm. Mercury on outwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it is that is the thing that's remarkable about it. There are many remarkable things about the Earth that make you ask the question, how on earth can this happen? Mm. I mean, one of them is that the, if you take the measure the effective temperature of the Earth from space, it's, it's considerably higher than that of Venus. Right. Uh, surprising. Uh, which is very surprising. Mm. And the reason being is pumped down carbon dioxide uh, to a point where the radiation outwards is quite, quite great. Mm-hmm. And that gets rid of the excess heat. Right. And uh-huh. it helps cool the whole planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's a fairly remarkable stage of affairs to happen. Mm-hmm. It couldn't happen by accident. Mm-hmm. At least one can't conceive of it mm-hmm. happening by accident. Uh-huh. Uh, that's one of many, many attributes of, of the Earth that suggest that it is a, a thing. But there is no, I, I don't think, there's anything that would constitute a proof in... Um... Mm. There's, there's no equation as such for it, you know? That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Um, do humans play a role in the Gaia theory? Could Gaia theory exist without the presence of us, without the presence of humans? Oh, yeah. Do we play a part? Well, obviously, we're playing a huge part now with climate change mm-hmm. and then trying to change the climate so as to stop it getting too hot stop the earth getting too hot. And that's terribly important because we're, we're at a very dodgy edge now, as I think it was Sir John Horton who first raised the point, if the sea temperature rose above 47, the earth would rapidly go on to what Hansen refers to as the Venus Express. <laughs> the, uh-huh. uh, the, all, the water would evaporate uh, uh, from the ocean to the point where the loss of heat to space was hampered by the greenhouse effect of water vapor to an mm-hmm. extent that there's nothing to stop it just rising indefinitely. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. And uh, but indefinitely, I mean, lifting it up to supercritical uh, steam, which will then dissolve rocks. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, the magma becomes continuous with the atmosphere. And it doesn't last much longer than that before becoming a planet like Venus. Mm-hmm. So do you think climate change is the greatest threat then to humanity? Indeed it is, yes. And to the existence of a rocky, of a, sorry, a, a, a living planet like this. Mm-hmm. Have you had a lot of opposition to Gaia theory over the years? Have you found a lot of resistance in the, in the, Enormous. Sci- in the scientific community? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Particularly in America. Why do, you, why do you think that is? What is the, what's the, um, what's the, what's the main kind of line of, well, I think the university ethos is still built on Aristotelian thinking in a cause and effect. And you just cannot make models of that type mm-hmm. on, on, on such a basis. Right. Uh-huh. And the, 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 the clash is too big. So they, they say, oh, no, we don't want this. Mm. So there's no, there's no proof for your theory, essentially. There's no, like, it's, not, it's not like a lot of areas of science where you can get a de- definitive proof. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
And do you think the name had any impact in how it was perceived at all? Well, it wasn't mine. Where, yeah, where did the name come from, Gaia? Strangely enough, it came from a physicist. All oh, right. And that was Bill Golding, the author. Oh, okay. <laughs> he happened to be a neighbour of mine in a village in Wiltshire where we both lived. And he was very interested in my trips to JPL mm. and wanted to know what was going on. And mm. When I came back, I said, I've got this theory about the... You know, he said... If you're going to come out with a theory like that, you better give it a good name. Mm. So I said, well, what would you suggest? And he said, Gaia, uh-huh. uh, you know, the Greek name for the Earth. Mm-hmm. So that's how it got its name. It wasn't me, it was mm. Bill Golding. Uh-huh. And he was a Nobel Prize winning author. That's the author uh, of Lord of the Flies? Yes. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, do, you, do you regret calling it Gaia now? Would you? No. No. Uh-huh. If you could go back in time, you wouldn't? You wouldn't change its name or... I don't worry me one, one bit. Look, we're living here. We're very happy. Uh, why regret anything like that? You're set to turn 100 in July, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, you must have seen so many changes to the world and to the way we live during that time. Um, do you view the rapid progression of our species as a good thing? Obviously, technology, for example, is just seems to be developing at such a fast pace. I was wondering, from your environmental perspective, do you see this this development as a as a positive thing? I've never actually compared the rate of progress of uh, humans in terms of things they can achieve and do and whatnot as a species uh, with past life. I'm not so sure that we are the fastest. Um, The change from uh, life before there were uh, the the present multicellular organisms Mm -hmm. that that, uh, have prokaryotes and eukaryotes Mm -hmm. combined with the the advantages of both was a gigantic step. Mm -hmm. And... uh, it may be a lot, that was a larger one than this. Now, that took place about 700 million years ago. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the future of our planet? Are you, are you optimistic about, from a human point of view, I guess, are you optimistic about the direction we're going in? I'm a bit worried. I've got a lot of grandchildren, great-grandchildren come to that. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, I think it could be very dodgy in the intervening periods. Mm-hmm. And what would you like to see happen in order to to help? I don't think anything I would like to see happen is going to happen. It'll just happen. <laughs> Do you think it'll come from politics or science or somewhere else? I think it'll come from outside the Earth. I mean, for example... Or, or, or within the Earth, uh, at the moment there is a gigantic volcano emerging in the Pacific. You probably know about this, mm-hmm. and uh, its potential, if it uh, expands a good bit further, is to change the climate absolutely drastically, mm-hmm. and in a way that could be fatal to an awful lot of us. So that that is more than enough to worry about, w- without predictions based on what we're doing with. Um, cars and diesel engines and so on. So, uh-huh. I was also going to ask, we've talked a lot about the things you've done in your career, about Gaia theory, your inventions. 
Um, looking forward, what do you hope your legacy will be? What do you hope that people will Legacy? There's remember the work to do. I've got another book to write. <laughs> that was James Lovelock talking about his life and career. His new book, Novacine, is out now, and you can read an accompanying interview exploring the themes of his book in the summer issue of BBC Science Focus, which is out on the 17th of July. In the meantime, if you're after more mind-expanding knowledge that even centenarian scientists would be amazed by, the current issue of BBC Science Focus is packed full of features, news and interviews to help you make sense of the world around you. In the latest issue, we explore the lives of the Technicolor dinosaurs, meet the scientist who wants to redefine masculinity and find out the truth about CBD oil. And just one more thing, we now have more than 75 episodes of the Science Focus podcast, each of which is well worth a listen. So why don't you go back and listen to a few? We think you'll really enjoy them, so be sure to let us know what you think in the comments and reviews. It really helps us get the show out there. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.